So hello everyone, welcome. Um, in case you don't know who we are, I'm Tony, um, this is Angela and here's Daz. Uh, and we're the admins of the Back to the Future, the musical fans Facebook group. Um, we've nearly got 1700 members now. Um, and today we're joined by two absolute legends in the music industry. And they're speaking to us today because they're responsible for writing the fantastic music and lyrics for Back to the Future, the musical. Uh, welcome Alan Silvestri and Glenn Ballard. Yeah. Thank you for having us on your show. We so appreciate it. So the musicals landed in West End, finally. Um, we hope you had a great time on press night, uh, seeing obviously everything get built up to where it eventually got to. Um, how's it been for you guys? Uh, what are your thoughts finally seeing it in the West End? Well, I absolutely love it. I, that's my first reaction is at, at this point, I'm like an audience member and I'm going, I'm riding the wave with the audience. I mean, we, what we've discovered is that we are making people happy in our theater. So uh, it makes me enormously happy to see that. And it's, we've taken such a, a big leap from the Manchester iteration of this show. And I, I do believe that for musical theater, it's a unique experience and I couldn't be more proud of it. It's kind of like, until you actually get in there and see it, you don't really know what I mean. But we're, <laughs> we're trying to at least give people a hint of, of, of what's waiting for them in, in the Adelphi Theater. And I echo all of, all of Glenn's comments. Um, you know, Back to the Future, the film, for me, is one of those films where if you're channel surfing one night and you see it, uh, you can kind of get stuck there because it's so beautifully written that there's constantly something coming um, that's important to the story and is entertaining. And, you know, as Glenn said, we, are, we find ourselves now as audience members and every time I watch the show, it's just like the film in how it's constantly moving, constantly entertaining. There are no places where you look at your watch like Marty does in the poster. You don't have time to do that in the, in the show. And, and it's been fantastic for us to finally see it materialize and see audiences enjoying it. That's great. We're, we're so pleased that both of you were able to join us at the same time. Um, like from what we've seen on social media, you've like practically been inseparable while working on this project. Like certainly over the last two months, maybe over the last like say 15 years or more. Um, and since this, before, before this, you collaborated on the Polar Express. And then mm -hmm. next you'll be working on the new Pinocchio movie, which is also being directed by Bob Zemeckis. But we were right. really interested to know, like when, when was the first time that you two became aware of each other's work? And like, what were the circumstances that you first met? Well, first of all, let me say, I've been hearing Alan Silvestri's brilliant scores since way back, even before Back to the Future in 1985. So I have always admired Alan's writing, his incredible harmonic gift and his storytelling gift as a composer. So I've known about him for 30 years. Uh, we first got to work together, I think, around the beginning of the new millennium, around 2000 or so, and when we did Polar Express, which came out in 2005, that was the first, I think, co big collaboration between us, but um, I've known of his work. It, it, you hear it everywhere. You can't get away from it. And it's always so iconic. So mm -hmm. 
it's a great honor for me to be able to work with such a gifted composer. And you know, it's the same story for me. I remember dancing around with my baby girl, who is now 36, um, on my shoes uh, to Glenn Ballard songs. <laughs> and fortunately, we share two magnificent representatives, um, Mike Orfane and Sam Schwartz. And for years, I would hear from the guys, hey, you know, you really have to meet Glenn. You really have to meet Glenn. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. And then, you know, the circumstances appeared where I really did have to meet Glenn because <laughs> I needed that tremendous gift of uh, lyric, music, production, storytelling that, that Glenn, Glenn has. And so we met. Um, and it was like an old friendship, I think, on the first day. And, and we have spent a lot of time together. <laughs> and and more, more to come. Uh, you know, you mentioned Pinocchio, and we are, we've already, we actually began that in Manchester, um, just kind of as the very beginnings of that. And we're, we're still at it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's great to have that. To look forward to. We're 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 going to continue to spend lots of time together. That's great. Uh, I think everyone refers to you as the dream team um, of the musical. I think it's it's really clear to show you work well together. And um, obviously, one of the things we want to talk about today is the cast album, and you're just finishing off the recording process for that. So we're definitely mm -hmm. going to talk about that a bit later. Um, but before mm -hmm. we do, we thought we would talk a little bit about the process that you went through when writing for the musical. Um, so, Anne, do you want to kick us off with a question about the process? Yeah, so this is a question for both of you. Obviously, I know, Glenn, you worked with Dave Stewart and Bruce Joel Rubin previously on Ghost the Musical. Um, I wondered how you both found preparing to write for musical theatre. And did you go and see lots of shows to prepare or did you immediately know, like with guidance from the producers, what angle you wanted to take? How, how did you find that? When I was in high school, I had some theatre background and I directed my high school musical and uh, so I've always had this affinity for stage and I kind of took a, a pop music detour for about 30 years. And <laughs> <laughs> but I've always, I, there's something so immediate and visceral and satisfying about being in a room with people watching something together live. And when it really works, it's the most transcendent thing that I have ever experienced in entertainment. So, I mean, I think for anyone who wants to do this well, you have to honor the original source material. And for from day one, our whole approach, it was the same on Ghost, but even more so on Back to the Future, was to find the essential elements of the story from the movie and then gently strip away all the movie devices and you're left with the core of the story and the spirit. And we spent a lot of time really trying to understand the essential elements of Back to the Future, the, the movie, because it has informed every single beat of our musical. They're not the same, but they're, they're such close companions. And uh, I think one helps the other, you know. It, it was a great gift to, to us. And when I say us, um, I, I'm referring to the, what we call the core four, Robert Zemeckis, Bob Gale, uh, Glenn and Alan. Um, the three of us 
um, not including Glenn, had not done a musical. And, um, and so as we went through the life cycle of all this and tried to find our way and develop things, we always had this chance to swivel our head a little in the direction of Mr. Ballard and, and, and get a nodding confirmation. It's like, yeah, no, that'll work. That'll work. Yeah, because Glenn had gone through the whole cycle from writing a musical, seeing it staged, seeing the audience sit there, living through the critics and enjoying the audience, the whole thing he had been through. And it was a great support to us as we, we tried to concentrate on the telling of the story. Uh, and that's really what we always had to fall back to. And um, Glenn was mentioning the other day what it was like having the two sources of Back to the Future always there with us. We had Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis and anything Glenn and I brought to this, um, we had the horse's mouth in the room, mouths in this case, at all times. And, and that allowed us to confirm our footing as we, as we went forward, which was tremendous. Amazing. Uh, so, I mean, we were really, I mean, we're from Manchester uh, ourselves, so it was really great to, for the musical to premiere in Manchester. Um, for Glenn, um, what made, how, was it hard to convince Bob Gale to bring it to Manchester? Because obviously you had great, such great success with Ghost in Manchester. Not in the least. Bob has been game for all of this. I mean, he has been so supportive of anything that we wanted to try. And it was a it was a no brainer for me. The Manchester Opera House where we did Ghost, I love that room. I love the people of Manchester. Their support for our show gave us the fuel to get to London. I can tell you that. And so it everybody loves Manchester. I mean, you know, we're just sorry that we didn't finish our run there, but that was all COVID related. You know, Manchester was there for the birth. And we felt so embraced by the people of Manchester. And Sandra, to this day, constantly talks about her love of Manchester and what a kind of transforming experience that was for us. Because I think Glenn may or may not agree, creatively, we were very fragile when we drove into Manchester. We had not put this in front of an audience before. And we didn't really know how it was going to go. And that very first preview night, um, the show played very much like it plays to this day. And we just all looked at each other and we went, all right, we have a musical. And it was, I don't think we'll ever forget that. No. Yeah. That's so amazing to hear. So obviously, you, you have, unlike a movie, you've got like, your three weeks of previews to be able to change things and stuff like that. And do you consider yourselves to be perfectionists? Uh, how do you decide when to leave something alone? We leave it alone when we run out of time. When they tell us, <laughs> <laughs> when, deadline, when it's over, it's over. But we've been working on it, it, literally detailing it up to this moment. I mean, we we still, you know, because we're doing the soundtrack and some of the things that we're doing in the recording studio, we're going, okay, you guys do that on stage tonight, you know? So yeah. our poor actors have been like, you know, processing all kinds of stuff, just mad respect for the, the, 
you know, how hard it is for them to do this. And they've just been such a willing group of, of soldiers on our way to do this. Yeah. You know? And we're just so grateful for it. But yeah, we, we never, we're not done until, I mean, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow. I guess that'll be it, sort of. <laughs> no, you're not done. You're not done. <laughs> you're sending mixes to you in LA. You're not even close. You're going to have a day off is what you're going to have. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting. It is one of the fundamental differences between theater and film. You know, the schedules are always crazy. You're always pushed up against it. At some point, it is taken away from you, as they say, it's pried out of your cold, dead hands. Um, but in, in live theater, there is that ongoing chance. I think one of the frustrating things was, you know, you, you get into the theater for your previews, and you, there's this chance to change and, and adjust, but everybody's doing it. The, the lighting people, the set people, the actors, the crew, the ushers in the theater, everybody's changing and adjusting. And when you look at our director, John Randall, everybody's coming to him with all these things they now want to do. And it's, um, you know, it, it was fascinating to see the elegance with which John Randall kind of allowed us all to, to fix and to adjust and kind of kept everything calm and lovely and, uh, and you know, get the most of your dream up there on stage. I think it's been great watching the show evolve, like being there at the opening in Manchester for the previews and Manchester press night, and then opening night of previews in London and then watching it again on press night. And mm -hmm. we'll watch it again several times. I think, it's great to watch that evolve. Um, yeah. Just thinking a bit about um, like the differences again between the, the movie and the, and the musical. Alan, when, when recording the orchestral score for Back to the Future, you had like something like a 90 odd piece orchestra. And the, I think the program says there's eight computers and 14 live musicians for the, for the musical. Did mm -hmm. you find it like more or less challenging to work with that smaller band? Well, I think it's, it's, you know, you bring, bring up a very interesting challenge. Um, and there are a couple things of, about that. I think we had more than 90 people on that original score. I think it may have been over 100. And, and we may have had six or eight keyboards there as well. Um, a couple of things that, that happened. Certainly the score part of the show, that material was written and conceived for a very large ensemble, which clearly we were not going to have. Um, so we had to look at that and Glenn and I had to see spotting wise and, and use wise, how can this function in our show? Where and how do we do it? And the other thing is that with live theater, there's something magical about the fact that there are these musicians in this room with you while you're watching the show. And it's one of the great aspects, I think, of live theater is things can happen. Um, somebody can get lost. Something can change. An actor could try to put their arm in the sleeve of a jacket and miss it. And now they could be late for their cue getting out on stage with 
smoke going and cars going and all this stuff. I mean, in, in the movie world, the film can break. And even that can't happen anymore because I don't even know if they're using film anymore. A computer can have a power failure. So, so we had to, we had to first of all look at how we're going to render that part of the music and then how far we want to go because we want to keep the charm and loveliness of that live theater environment. I think we found um, a good compromise of delivering power and scope on the level appropriate for live performance um, and, and, you know, didn't kind of take advantage of our, our resources. I, you know, I feel good. I don't know, Glenn, how you're feeling about the imaging of that, but, but it feels like we found a pretty good spot. I'm actually amazed because Alan's 100-piece score from 1985 is so magnificent. But honestly, I feel like it's still magnificent in this slightly smaller duration. We have 14 invisible people under the stage playing this every night. And yes, there are some samples and enhancements that Alan has provided them, but they are really playing a very, very difficult score. I mean, I have to say, at the end of every night, they need a drink, you know, because it's they've been it's a really very difficult, and we 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 hope that they could achieve it, and I think they have, and so I I think in terms of of live musical theater, it does get to a moment of many moments of of grandeur that we're kind of like breaking the mold here because it, it does sound like Back to the Future, the score, maybe a little less, but it's still got all the energy. It's, it's full of this energy of the music, you know? Yeah. All the fans are super, super impressed with the way the original score is intertwined with the music. Mm -hmm. You know, something we hear time and time again when people are talking about their favorite parts, both of the movie and the musical, it's that, um, that moment when the score, I think like on the on the soundtrack, it's called like the tension, the kiss and Earth Angel combined together. And you've got like music and, and score that are combining. Like it gives me, goof, I'm getting goosebumps now just talking about it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I think, uh, you know, that always gets a huge round of applause. How early in the process did you just decide, okay, that absolutely has to be in the musical? Um, well, yeah, Glenn, you can you can speak to well, that. The, the, the first thing we we did when we approached it was to make sure that we had all the songs from the movie that you love, Earth Angel, Johnny Be Good, Back in Time, The Power of Love. We wouldn't dream of depriving the audience of those moments. We just had to kind of reconfigure them a little bit. But those songs we knew had to be in the show. Are you kidding? We got four hit songs in there that, you know, it's a gift. Yeah. So <laughs> use it. And not only that, those songs really do carbon date the eras, the 50s, the 80s. And it was kind of a template for us to like make sure that the songs we wrote, if, if it was in the 80s, it sounded more 80s. If it's the 50s, it sounded more 50s. And it was a, a delicious opportunity to kind of mix it up. And then you have this orchestral score that's essential to all of it. And I think we've created kind of a hybrid. It's, it's a, new, a new kind of way of approaching it, you know? Yeah. When you look at Earth Angel in particular, 
if you think about the film, really dramatically, the entire film is driven by whether or not George kisses Lorraine at just the right time. The entire film is hinging on that. And it worked magnificently in the film. And I think we knew walking into this entire event that that moment, we had to achieve that on stage or we'd be missing the point for the entire show. So we worked hard on that to, to have that all happen. I mean, you know, when you think about cinema and the director has these things called close-ups and cuts and you know, you can cut to Marty's face and you can cut to George's face and you can cut to hands moving closer to each other. You don't have any of that stuff in live theater, but you need to accomplish narratively the task. And um, I feel really good. I, if you love that moment in the movie, I think you'll love that moment um, in, in the show. And the audiences seem to really love it. You know, I want to just add one little thing an addition, um, we were talking about our man, magnificent band. Um, it is our exact and entire band that was with us through all of the rehearsals in Manchester and opening night and all through our unfortunately limited run. The exact same players are with us now. And it's, it's, it's such another level of involvement musically because we have our cast, but our, our musicians are also our cast, our dear beloved cast mates and uh, pretty fantastic. They all located to Manchester and made this happen for us. Pretty magnificent. Yeah. I think it's great to see Jim wearing the red life preserver when he's uh, playing now. Just the best. Great. Um, Alan, you, it's mentioned from you in the programme that two of the first songs that were written were um, Only a Matter of Time and Hello, Is Anybody Home? Um, we were mm. wondering how many songs did you write in, in total that perhaps didn't make the cut? Were there a lot more songs or...? Well, songs that didn't make the cut. Glenn, what would you say if you had a... If you had a uh, not that many that didn't make the cut. Not that many, but... There were, I think there's a lot of DNA that we left behind, you know? I mean, <laughs> when you're trying to tell the story and, you know, obviously for anyone to start singing in, in the middle of this narrative, it, it has to be an important reason for them to sing. So I think, you know, for us, the first thing was always trying to understand why the characters would be singing. What is motivating them? What's the predicate for them to suddenly tell the audience what they really think. And these moments are not available in a movie. So we, we wrote many versions of maybe the same song for, for characters. Yeah. You know, sure, sure. Until we could adjust it in the story, tonally, story-wise. And, but it was always about it was, it, we weren't doing it randomly. We were always trying to find either a scene or a character and we would just keep banging away at it until until something really felt naturally right, you know? I mean, the first order of business 
really, if you want to talk about how we wrote these songs, was to take Alan's score and musicalize the very opening number. It, it took us a, a bit of time to figure out, but using the elements of, of Alan's score to introduce kind of the ensemble and some of the characters to the audience, that was the first thing we did. And, and I think that was the first thing we brought to Mr. Gale and Mr. Zemeckis, which was this kind of opening number based on the iconic theme that you know. And that's how we started it. We started with the movie and the music from the movie and worked our way beyond that. I remember, I, I remember Glenn talking about that as, a, as an entry point and, and thinking, wow, that, yeah, the, the tune, that, that theme, and it's like, trust me, this, is, this, this will work, as Doc might say. And, uh, and you know, it, it, was, it was a place for us to enter this long process. And, and I think as is so often the case when a piece of material like Back to the Future works on a story level, once you gain the trust of your audience and they feel that you're caring for them and care about them, you can begin to explore and push limits all over the place. And you can actually begin to see how much, um, how much depth there is in that story. And it's been an absolute joy for Glenn and I to, to just feel that freedom. A very interesting part of the creative process is, as Glenn is saying, every word, every note, every image for even songs that were massively rewritten, everything was derived from Back to the Future. So interesting things happened then in the creative process. Glenn and I had a, had a song, and there were top hats in it. And there are no longer top hats in, there, in that song, but there are top hats in another song <laughs> because there was something, something speaking to Glenn and I from Back to the Future that had top hats in it. And so, <laughs> and so everything, you know, it's not a question of recycling something as much as a question of the story is talking to us and we're trying to receive these messages. And once in a while, you get the top hats in the wrong song. And you, then you find the proper place for them. And okay, that's what that was supposed to be. And it works. It works. <laughs> um, it works. I can't believe it works. It works. <laughs> It works. <laughs> We've got about 15 minutes left, so I was going to suggest we cut to the questions about yeah. the cast album because we definitely sure. want to talk a little bit about those. So, uh, yeah, Anne, do you want to do you want to kick off the cast album questions? Yeah. So, we're obviously, as um, Tony said earlier, everyone is hugely interested in the cast album. Can't wait for its release. So, we're wondering what can we expect from the cast album? Um, does it include instrumental cues? Any dialogue? Glenn, please. Well, I. First of all, it, it's what we've tried to do is make this soundtrack be a companion to the show. But if you haven't seen the show, also an invitation to the show. So we have included a lot of the orchestral cues, some dialogue, 
enough to, to sort of ground you in the story. And, and it runs in real time. I mean, the first song in the show to the end of the show, it's all a, a linear representation wow. of the show. And so I think that it, if you've never seen the show and if for some reason you've never seen the movie, which could be rare, I still think that if you put this soundtrack on, it will, it will take you through the narrative and you know what we found you know five years ago when we first presented these songs just as a concert is that people just like the songs that they and there's enough awareness of these characters anyway when doc brown starts singing it's like oh my god i i know doc brown and and now he's giving me even more about who he is you know and he's also being really funny so it's on some level it was always about capturing the character's spirit, intention, and, and, and using the narrative to help us do that, you know? Yeah, and, and we, really, we really wanted folks to, to see the show and then have this cast album and just have this sense that they're with an old friend. Um, and we want them to go back and see their real old friend because their real old friend is in the theater. Um, but we wanted it to be um, something that really resonated with their experience in the theater. And uh, as Glenn said, we intentionally kept it chronological. So if you sit down and listen to the cast album, you can, in a sense, have an echo and a sense of going through and, and being with, not seeing, but being with the show. And, and we're hoping that we achieve that. We, we think we have. So obviously the, the album's got a, a release date of the 26th of November, no pressure, anyone. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I, I think I know everyone, especially on our page, have already got it pre-ordered. And um, is it going to be? Is it going to be any release like on a vinyl or a retro cassette or anything like that that you got planned? I'm sure there will be some vinyl. We will not have vinyl ready for November 26th, but there will be vinyl somewhere along the way. Uh, but we're the vinyl thing takes a little bit longer and. Our main focus is to is to just finish, you know, the recording and to get it ready for the 26th because we wouldn't want to miss that for anything. Right, right. You know, I can I can say this trying to to uh, trying to project and connect some dots when we did um, Polar Express, um, and and this is in reference to Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis when we did Polar Express. One day, Bob Zemeckis walked in with 45s of Tom Hanks singing Hot Chocolate. So the, the Bobs, as we, as we love to call them, the Bobs really love the whole idea of things like vinyl and things that have to do with really caring for this thing that has become known as Back to the Future. And um, I would think that the idea of vinyl would be right up their alley in terms of something really lovely for Back to the Future, but more importantly, for the fans. That would be great, I think. Everyone's asking for it. Um, 
I wonder, maybe you can't say, but like, have there been any discussions about like any popular music artists covering any songs? Um, but I think what I'm mostly interested in is, are there any, is there anyone that you would like to hear covering some of the songs out of the musical? Glenn, you should speak to that because you've pretty much worked with everyone on the planet. Right, yeah. At this point, it would be a gift for anyone who wants to take any of these songs and do it. I'm so enamored of the performances from our, our actors right now. I haven't projected that. I mean, uh, Ollie Dobson as Marty McFly is doing a magnificent job and Rosanna Highland singing beautifully and Roger Bart as Doc Brown. Uh, at this point, I just want to hear him sing the songs, but yeah. I have a feeling that there are going to be some people who want to sing these songs and it would be a great honor to us. I mean, you know, honestly, any of these songs that people can extract and turn into a performance, we would love that. Yeah, I think we'd want the, the um, popular UK band McFly, if you've heard of them, they're big back to the future fans. We'd love them to do like yeah. a version of Anybody Home. We think they'd be a great job of that with their guitars and really. Yeah. Um, a blessing. So, um, I think we're almost done. Um, so we've got a few general questions towards the end. And Alan, I just have to share with you, this was the first tape that I ever bought. Um, with wow, my own look um, at that. It's the, it's the Bikes of the Future part three soundtrack score. I used to listen to this with my Walkman on like every night as a kid. Um, Fantastic. I just loved it. Like it's almost like a lullaby when you're listening to part three. It's my favorite soundtrack of the trilogy. Um, oh, that's not is my favorite movie, but this is my favorite soundtrack. Ah, oh, that's fantastic. Um, but I, I'm curious, what were the first um, the first records or albums that you two purchased? Can you remember? Glenn, you're going to have a, a whole world of well, answers for uh, that. Mine was the American version of the Beatles release called Meet the Beatles. I bought it at Tillman's Record Store on Franklin Street in Natchez, Mississippi. The records came in on Tuesday. I was sitting there waiting for it to arrive and I took it home. And this is what's so great about vinyl. It's a big piece of art too, you know? And I probably listened to it a hundred times. I just kept turning it over and over and everybody was saying, turn that down, you know? It was like, you know. <laughs> and I had a bunch of Sinatra records from my parents. I didn't actually buy them, but I wore them out because he's my favorite singer. So. It started with Frank Sinatra, then it moves quickly to the Beatles. <laughs> I wasn't quite as sophisticated as Glenn. I remember being very young and, and I had a little Victrola, they called it, one of those little boxes for 45s. And I just remember uh, hearing over and over again, again, uh, Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis. And my mother tells the story that I would sit on top of the Victrola and I would... I would follow the record around. And she said she almost had a heart attack one day. She walked in and interrupted, uh, interrupted me. And, and I looked up and my eyes were completely crossed. And she thought, oh my God, my, my child has destroyed himself. So he's done something terrible to himself. Uh, but I really remember that record and just play, play, play. It's so interesting. I also bought every single James Brown single. I had over a hundred James Brown singles. Yeah. 
some of the greatest music ever recorded. Ever. Hans, do you want to just uh, pop to your question about um, what the story we saw on Instagram? Yeah, Glenn, we saw on Instagram one of your stories that were shared that you saw um, came across a singer in Covent Garden who was singing Ironic. And we thought that was really special that you approached the, the lady and, and spoke to her. And we wondered how often does that happen? And is it what kind of is that a bit of a weird experience when you're strolling along and you hear someone singing one of your songs? I, I'm, I'm so touched by it. It, uh, it, uh, it. I'm enormously flattered. And of course, when I heard her out there singing it, I, of course, I had to go up and at least put 20 pounds in, in, into the. Yeah. The guitar case but mostly to just thank her and to encourage her uh and the spirit of anybody who's a busker because playing music on the streets the hardest thing in the world but i feel like that's kind of what i do anyway i get to move into a theater every now and then but i'm trying to entertain people so anytime i see somebody doing that and they're going to use one of my songs it's all it's homage from me because i i just think that's that's how you keep music alive. When people play it like that, it's the most beautiful thing I can imagine. And Alan, we Alan, we noticed you had a we noticed you had a similar experience um, visiting the British Museum. Um, yeah, and, and you know, I, I yeah, it's it's once in a while you'll hear something um, of yours as as Glenn you know describes. We went to. Um, God, I'm trying to think. We 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 found ourselves in the southern United States, sitting in the actual town square where Forrest Gump was filmed, and we were looking at the movie. And some things had been changed cinematically in the movie, but we're sitting there, and it's all lovely. And all of a sudden, we hear a trumpet far, far away playing the theme from Forrest Gump. And it was, it was like a siren's call. We followed the sound and uh, that, but this was US currency, Glenn. This wasn't pounds, this was $20. <laughs> <laughs> but see, you paid more, which, you know, you should. <laughs> but it was, it, you know, but the, the general sense of hearing someone not connected to you directly with a piece of your music um, performing it somewhere is, is just an amazingly wonderful, warm feeling um, that you've reached someone with something you've done. It's, it's amazing. Obviously, we're big fans and we've been following you a lot on social media. Is there anything you think you can tell us about the music of Back to the Future, the musical, which we probably don't already know? Any small factoid or anything at all? <laughs> hmm. Trivia, Glenn. What, what, what could you? What, what do you think? I'm trying to think. Nothing's coming to my mind. <laughs> it's all about destiny, I think. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. But I do know this: that if you love the movie, I do believe you will love this show. And the two are so companionable together. And, but I think that the fans should know that the movie is the bedrock of our show. It really is. And what we've had to do dramaturgically has not in any way corrupted the spirit and intention of the original movie. 
And I really feel like if you sit in the audience and you watch it, there's so many callbacks to the movie and the things they kind of blend together at a certain point in the whole process. And for that, I'm enormously grateful. You know, the only thing I'd add to what Glenn said is um, I've had the experience of, of smart music people uh, in media uh, say, I adore the film. There's no way this can be done as a musical. And I've, I haven't thought about it until this very moment, but Glenn and I have had 14 years to figure that out. And a fan or someone who loves the film hasn't had any time to figure that out. And so um, having been on that path for 14 years, I would just want to say to any fans of the film, I can see why you would say that. Please trust the fact that Glenn Ballard and Alan Silvestri walked that path and you should give it a try. You should just see, because um, we could have said the very same thing 14 years ago and actually began our first meeting with that question. Can you even do this? And we could theoretically say maybe, but it took 14 years to find the real answer to that question. And uh, I think we found it and everyone should risk um, seeing the show. If they love the film, I think they will love the way the film has been honored in Back to the Future, the musical. 100%, I think we all agree. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we can't echo those thoughts enough. Um, absolutely, you've, you've, you've absolutely smashed it. Um, you've actually answered the last question there because it was gonna be, <laughs> Um, we have a lot of members in our group who haven't yet had the chance to see the show, but they do have tickets booked. Um, and it was going to be, why should they see it? And you've summed that up perfectly. Yeah. Wonderful. The, the only thing I wanted to add is anybody who doesn't get to see it right away, the soundtrack will be a nice little, you know, introduction to what, what you're going to see on stage. So, <laughs> so I know everybody can't be in London right now, but we want the world and all the world fans of Back to the Future to know we have some music that represents our show and on November the 26th you will be able to hear it. Now. <laughs> and it, it's only a matter of time until it goes to Broadway and the world. <laughs> As the saying goes from your lips. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Uh, so guys thank you so much for your time this has been a dream come true for all of us we've been watching the show from the start uh we yeah. keep the support we keep the support going on all our socials and we'll just continue yeah. to drive that and we, we just love the show so much we we love that you're you're engaged in that way and and that's what really helps us where we you know we do this for fans and uh and all i need to figure out is how i'm gonna sign that cassette we have to figure that out i don't know oh, yeah. or have i done that already so you signed you signed all these all right well, that cassette, Neil, but maybe you don't want that one to file with a signature but i'd be happy yeah. to do that can find thank you so much right. um, thank all you. right thanks guys it was a pleasure thank you, so thank you.
Good luck with Pinocchio. Right. Um, we can't wait for the cast album. Thank you both. Fantastic. Thank you, Thank you guys. Glad to see you guys. in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> hey, bye bye, guys. Bye bye. 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 bye.